Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelley Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. Today, we're welcoming Betsy Ziegler to the show. Betsy is the CEO of 1871, Chicago's Technology and Entrepreneurial Center. 1871 supports early stage, growth stage, and corporate innovators building extraordinary businesses from idea to Fortune 50. Betsy is also a mom, former chief innovation officer at the Kellogg School of Management of Northwestern University, and a champion of female founders around the globe. Betsy earned her MBA from Harvard Business School. She serves on the board of directors for the Anne and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital and the Museum of Science and Industry. She's also an advisor and investor for a number of Chicago startups. Welcome to the show, Betsy. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So, Betsy, if you don't mind, can you please share with our listeners a little bit more about 1871? Sure. So, as Patrick said at the beginning, we support companies across the full maturity curve. People that have an idea through growth stage, people that have 25 people on their team and growing at 150% a year to Fortune 50, Most people think about us as the home for startups. That is where we got our actual start. We're nine years old. Uh, We consider ourselves the central tech address in Chicago, operating out of the Merchandise Mart. We're home to about 400 active early stage companies right now, all virtual at the moment, or mostly all virtual, about 300 growth stage companies and several dozen enterprise or corporate institutions. And Uh, My job and my team's job every day is to help increase the probability of success of all those that we're working with and shorten the time frame for them to reach that success. And I'll just mention two quick metrics that we pay really close attention to. One is how many jobs have been created by companies started at 1871, and we're somewhere north of 11,000 jobs at the moment. And so if you just take, just for a simple math, take $70,000 as an average annual salary. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but it's probably not high, right? So let's just say 70 grand. It's just shy of $800 million of annual salary impact in Chicago driven by these companies. And we we can get into this more later, but I believe that startups and small businesses are going to be the key to Chicago's economic recovery. And particularly people that would be considered underestimated. So black founders, Latinx founders, female founders. And the second impact metric I would talk about is is our diversity and our commitment to that. So of our founders, about 20% black founded, just shy of 30% female founded. And we're hovering at about 13% Latinx, all of which we have goals to be much more represented, but we're on the the path. And um, I'm super proud of our community for what they've gone through this year and how they've you know, managed through it. That's amazing. 11,000. I, I saw numbers, I think in California, they were talking about for every tech job, it supports three other jobs in services and, and non-tech related service industry jobs. Is that a metric that you're looking at as well? We do. We don't track it the same way the government tracks it. I think our ratio is a little bit north of our actual ratio of our companies is closer to about 14 or 15 jobs that get created. When you think about our alumni and current companies of being about 1100, 
a, a little shy of 1100. The math works out to be around 15. I know if you divide 1100 into 11,000, you don't get 15, but, but, <laughs> but, but if you go approximations, um, the number actually is closer to 15. The metric that we tend to use as a benchmark is around five and a half or six. So it's a force multiplier for sure, which is why even more important that this is um, that we're investing in this area, particularly in Chicago, as we as we think about the the growth that we've got to get focused on over the next couple of years. That's really cool. Just curious about see how are you reaching those markets? And when you started out nine years ago, were you laser focused on those markets to begin with? So I've been the CEO for three years, so I can't really, I can't, I don't know strategically, and I wouldn't want to suggest what people were focused on. I think when we opened our doors, the job of that CEO was to figure out, does this work, right? Does does making a, creating a place for young companies and founders to convene in Chicago, does it matter? Does it work in driving their success forward? And I think the answer is yes. And so we're a, we're a startup too. I mean, we're a nonprofit, but we're only nine years old. So, and we're constantly learning and, and adapting. And then as we got bigger and more established, some programs got put in place to support female founders, uh, the WISDEM program, or to support Latinx founders in partnership with the Illinois Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. We just launched our Black Tech program this February in partnership with Verizon and Ernst and & Young and William Blair. Uh, Verizon was the primary sponsor of that. And so it keeps evolving. I think in terms of how, how we who we partner with and how we reach out, we have a goal of being connected to all 77 neighborhoods in Chicago but by July of 2022. We're connected to about 29 right now. So we're just shy of halfway there. And connected could mean any number of things. It could mean that we're helping support an existing incubator that's there. It could mean that we're promoting something that's happening in the neighborhood. It could mean, you know, that we're problem solving with the leader of an organization. It could mean any number of things, but we believe that entrepreneurial talent and aspiration is equally distributed, but opportunity and access to resources like 1871 are not. And so how do we do that by not building mini 1871s everywhere in the and so our intention is to partner with the people that are already serving folks in their communities. Pretty amazing stuff. Mm-hmm. One thought as you were talking about when it got found, it got started. If you remember the Goose Island effort in the late 90s, right? Yeah. Um, the digital Hibatsu that was going to be built. What do you think is the thing, what were the biggest lessons learned that made 1871 a bigger success than, than Goose Island uh, struggled to kind of hit that break free point, right? It, it never got to that, you know, launch outside of gravity kind of thing. Yeah. You know, it's a great question. I haven't given it much thought, so I'll give you a handful of hypotheses. Uh, one is the nature of the civic leaders that were behind 1871. 1871 was born out of the Chicagoland Entrepreneurial Center, which itself was born out of the Chamber of Commerce. And the Chicagoland Entrepreneurial Center or the CEC is, I think, I think we're 21 years old now. And the the board that I have, a disproportionate share of the board I have came from the CEC. So this is something they've been thinking about and, and focusing on for a really long time. And that level of commitment has sustained all the way through. 
and my board is just extraordinary. They are a big chunk of the reason that we are uh, have been able to do what we do. I think the location of the mart has played a big role. I feel like the we're factly we're in the mart that it's super simple to get to from public transport. That it's that it's a natural convening place from the north to south, the west, et cetera. Like people can get there has played a big role. And then I think you know we had a lot of we had the the governor behind us and the. I mean, the then governor and the, and certainly the current governor who who drew the picture on the napkin that became 1871 and Mayor Emanuel. And, you know, we had a lot of positive energy that translated into really positive experiences. And then the word of mouth, just, you know, the little bit of the flywheel effect. It is. A, it's an interesting transformation. I was working at a very large insurance company in the Mart in like 2001, actually. So I, I was there on... 9-11. And uh, that is a trade center. I didn't see the sign on there until that morning. And I was walking in and I saw that it's considered a trade center and just kind of struck. But to your point is like, what a transformation from 2001 to even like 2007, 2008 timeframe of that was not a hot technology hub in 2001, right? It was a good deal for square footage for an insurance company, right? So it's it's really kind of a it's a, I think it's a great story, especially with the name 1871, right? The whole rebirth, right? Taking the great materials and using them again, that kind of thing. Yeah, and we opened our doors in 2012. And I think if you, I don't want to put words in the in the voices of the leaders of the Mart, but I think that they would reinforce that the energy that 1871 brought to the Mart allowed for a whole bunch of other things to happen um, subsequently. And so it's not a it's not a happen place right now, but it will be eventually. It will be again. It certainly was up until middle of March 2020, and it will be again. There's not too many happen places right now. No, agreed, no. Yeah. agreed. At least not in Illinois. Yeah, just uh, curious, Betsy. Can you talk about kind of your journey from McKinsey and then to Northwestern and and now 1871? Those are all very different. So just curious how you navigated that. Yeah, it's a, it's a long story that I'll make short. I was at McKinsey for 12 years. I was a partner in the insurance practice. Patrick, back to your, you know, your background too. And when the economic crisis hit, I was feeling stuck. Like I was in this, I felt like I was in this little box where I, I could, I could talk about the fact that the life insurance market lost half of its value. I could talk about something related to call centers and and operations because that was an area of expertise for me. And then something about the Ohio State Buckeyes of which I'm deeply, deeply passionate and, and perhaps a, a, a wee bit maniacal. And But I was feeling like I was becoming this uninteresting person. And so I, and I didn't like that feeling. And so I, I wrote down this list of the 40 things I wanted to do by the time I was 40. And at the, I wrote that list down when I was 37. And that like, just the writing it down changed the orientation of, of my life. And it led me to some opportunities inside of McKinsey to do some work in the social sector, which then lit off other light bulbs. It was like, oh, wait a second, my skills are portable and I could spend my time on a college campus solving these problems, or I could spend my time at a performing arts location doing these, you know, solving these problems with the skill set I had created. And those a uh, combination of those things led me to leave McKinsey and pursue a role as a social sector leader. I'm happy to go through the full story at another time. 
I, I read about the dean at Kellogg in the newspaper. I sent her a, an email. I'm not a graduate of, of Kellogg. She answered the email. So there's like, there's luck, there's timing, there's acting with intent, there's taking ownership, like all those things get rolled into a longer leadership chat I give about my journey. And I, I went to Northwestern. I was there for seven years and uh, was doing a lot of angel investing and a lot of advising to young companies that put me on the in the consideration set for the 1871 role when that opened up and uh, have been the CEO since uh, for three years, since April 2nd, 2018. And I, you know, the thing that ties it together, because obviously that's not something, you know, that path doesn't happen, right? You don't, it it doesn't, you have to create it. The thing that ties it all together for me is that every day I get to wake up in service of other people. And I found that that's like what's most important to me. And so at McKinsey with my clients at Northwestern's with students and, and now it's our, uh, the, you know, the founders and, and and innovators and builders that we serve across that maturity curve. That's awesome. I can't wait to hear the longer story, but out of, uh, Curiosity, how many of those things on your list of 40 did you actually get to check off? I did 39 of the 40 by my 40th, by my by the eve of my 45th first birthday. Cause I gave myself I gave myself, and I'll tell you which one I didn't do because whenever I tell that, people are like, Well, you can't like not tell us what the thing is you didn't do. But I did give myself my the 40th year. I'm I turned 50 this summer and I'm gonna do I'm doing the same thing because and I and I'm blaming COVID for that. Like I've lost a year of doing certain things. And so I'll give myself to the eve of my 51st to get my 50 done. Now it doesn't have to be, it's my own, there's no rule. I mean, I could I could have do five things by the time I was 50, right? I I just chose to do 50. I'm not sure I'll do 60 by 60. We'll decide. The thing I didn't get done by my 40th was to get something published. And at that time, now that seems like a ridiculous statement because everyone, you can get things published. You can publish, self-publish yourself on, uh, you know, 17 times a day. But a decade ago, that wasn't true. And so the world keeps changing, you know. And so since then, I've been published many times, but I that was the one thing I didn't get done. Well, uh, shifting a little bit from what you've done. And uh, I like Shelly, I'd love to hear the whole story at some point. Talk about what you're seeing now, right? So you're you're sitting at the, the nexus of quite a few different innovation communities. There's the, you know, the enterprise, right? There's the startups, uh, there's the established startups, you know. So what is it uh, that you're seeing as some of these corporations are starting to transform and understanding the criticality to your point of like, the growth that I think the Fed and, and quite a few economic advisors see, double-digit growth is probably not coming out of the traditional corporates, right? Anything where you're looking at two numbers is going to be coming from some kind of innovation or startup component. What are you seeing that s- successful corporations are doing to engage that kind of muscle that maybe they haven't used in quite a while? Yeah, sure. And so I, I may, if you'll indulge me, I kind of give a little bit of of a framework to how to answer the question. But I would say, if you look at the data, at least 70% of companies, a, a big companies of corporate and enterprise companies struggle to bridge the gap between innovation strategy and business strategy. And at least half of the companies who actually invest in innovation struggle to do the same thing. And so you sort of say, well, well, well why, right? If you've got, if half of those companies 
have an investment in innovation, which Patrick, you and I share the language of innovation theater or entrepreneurial petting zoos. We'll come back to that in a minute. <laughs> if, if these are companies are actually invested, then where is the gap? And the and the challenge is, is that innovation is is about exploration and figuring things out and testing hypotheses and cycling quickly. And we'll come back to why startups are better at that and not an execution challenge. And every every big company that we see today was at one point a person with an idea. And if you think about the big companies right now, their philosophy and everything is around management and execution. And so their KPIs are focused on managing. They focus on efficiency. They care about stock market investment style versus, you know, versus VC. They have like, you know, linear execution, all the cultural pieces, detail orientation, rigorous process, all those kinds of things are what corporates are good at. But most of those things don't play well when you're talking about exploration and really kind of uncovering the next big thing. And so we know a handful of facts. Um, I'll just I'll just throw out two or three for your audience and we can dig into any of them that you want. But and the, and the following comes from a combination of IDEO, Alex Osterwalder and his team, who were the authors of the business model uh, canvas, Linda Hill, who's a faculty member at Harvard. Like, you know, there's a number of people that we follow and study. But the first is that teams that use their purpose to guide their decision making have a 60% or higher, more successful launch of new ideas than teams that don't. Purpose, huh? Yeah. So that's a big one. And the second really big one, there's two other ones I'd like to just quickly mention. The second one is most companies are really good at asking people for their ideas, right? And, and creating kind of an idea marketplace. Most companies are really bad at turning those ideas into like coming up with a, a process by which those ideas get evaluated and then people get time to actually go spend on those ideas. And at least the companies that I've had the opportunity to either consult for or you know be close to have gone through this process where they get like try to get this like super tight precision on we've got 50 ideas at the top of the funnel and we're gonna pop out the bottom one. And then what happens, right? All the eggs are in the basket of that one. And then you really can't fail because everything is counting on that one. But companies that actually pursue five or more ideas simultaneously are 50% or more more likely to be successful than teams that pursue one idea. And I'm not talking about spending 5x the money. I'm taking I'm saying take the money and split it into, you know, into 20% that people and then you you're you're testing and and learning and the things that are working you're you're moving forward on, right? The the kind of um uh, we won't invest in it until you prove that it's possible model of corporate and I know Patrick you you have I don't know if you've seen it for sure, but my guess is that you've seen that. Like, yeah, it sounds like an interesting idea, but unless you prove to me that it works, I'm not giving you any money. That is not how innovation works, right? You gotta, you gotta do it, and then you gotta test it and learn from it. You've got to convince. You get the financing based around the idea that we're going to learn something, not make money. Exactly. Right? So you 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 are investing in the learning process, not in the fact that it could be a commercial opportunity. Hopefully it is. But if you just, if you just take venture capital math, 
of like to get to a unicorn. And if you if you literally just look at the percentage of companies like of venture returns of from different rounds, right? And how and and how that works, it'll take 250 attempts on average to get to one unicorn. So like a billion dollar outcome. And so what what the, you know the message there, of course, is that it's impossible to know the ideas that are the right, the good ideas ahead of time. And that's really challenging for corporates. And so those are a couple of the, the reasons I think corporates stall. Um, some have figured out how to do it more than others. I actually think Exelon is quite good at it. So, you know, I talk about our maturity curve of early stage, growth stage and corporate. And then inside of corporate, they created a maturity curve of where they plot themselves of how they're developing there, where the first, you know, the first part of the maturity curve is go visit places like 1871 and start to have an appreciation for the fact that there's outside world stuff, right? Um, as you get further along the curve, you're creating uh, the conditions for success for either for you to incubate internally or for you to invest in things externally without it being like enormously cumbersome for a startup. And I, I could talk about this all day, but as you know, like telling a startup that it's going to take six months to get through a legal or procurement process, right? That company could be dead. It will be dead. So it's just, it's just never going to work. Ongoing challenge. So a couple of thoughts as you were talking, I, I, I've used the uh, innovation theater term, but the entrepreneurial petting zoo, for some reason, I, I had a flashback to like Vonnegut and uh, Billy Pilgrim came up into my mind and being trapped by the Tram Faladorians, right? Where like they come in and they look at them and it's like, there's a human petting zoo. That's the only mental image. So I had to share it. So yeah, that's a very good, that's a, that's a memory you're recalling that I would not have been able to do. So kudos to you. I For me, it's this idea that, you know, we're going to have these corporate, these, these executives that come into 1871 and they're super energized and they just want to roam around and see the founders doing their thing. And that is fine as long as they're not disrupting their their lives. And and so we've tried to shut some of that down. There's a scene in uh, um, The Social Network where the guy shows up for the, I forget which guy, he's at the house and he goes over to introduce himself and he's like, no man, he's in the zone. He's not going to talk to you. And my wife made fun of, like, we have a software Right background, and so she'd walk into our business and see everybody there. There's 80 people there, quiet as church mites, because everybody's in the zone, right? She's like, "This is the quietest group of 80 adults I've ever seen." I'm like, "Oh, this is our preferred state." This, yeah. this is actually- so they got their headphones on, right? Totally. They're 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 in the flow. I, it's it. hard to be the amount of context switching I go through in a day is, and probably you guys go through in a day is extraordinary, right? Every every 30 or 60 minutes, it's a completely different thing. No, and I, I do like that, uh, the second part of the process. How are you fostering these ideas? You mentioned uh, how do these venture back portfolios, right? So Peter Thiel's concept is you've got to have a certain amount of startups that could pay for the entire portfolio because that might be the math you end up with. You might get one, right? And so, and that's kind of your point. And, and I think that's part of the challenge that I've seen myself where people are like, well, we tried it, it didn't work. It's like, well, how many times did you try it? Well, once it didn't work. Right. So what do you, have you seen anything, you know, is it, is it that the CEO has got to get on board with this? 
to really kind of change that culture because any like established organization is clearly going to be very good at mitigating risk, right? Creating efficiencies, removing variances, right? I think about, you know, working at Motorola, you know, that was part of their thing, right? The Six Sigma, we're going to reduce all the risk out of it, all that stuff. So how does somebody go from like the 80s were focused on that 90s and then now it's like, yeah, now we got to talk about change. Well, I, I think it's a it's super hard, right? And I think the job of being a corporate leader right now is super, super hard for lots of reasons. One, the, the there's the obvious things like the internal process and the and the uh, quarterly results and like those kinds of things that dr- drive focus. I think though that the, because the world is changing so fast and because we have access to so much more information now than certainly I did when I was a partner at McKinsey, like the, the amount of information I can tap into now, there's no resemblance to what I had when I was serving clients a decade ago. And, and the expectation that leaders know these things that are going on, right? You're, you're trying to keep on top of everything that's going on outside your walls and you're trying to do the stuff that's inside your walls. So I, I have I have a lot of empathy for for corporate leaders. I think that at the end of the day, the cor- the CEO has to set the the CEO has to care and has to be in, 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 has to be invested in this. And that most of the work in my opinion has to happen on the on the structure side of the house. So the meaning, um, not necessarily organizational structure, but I'll come back to that point in a second. But what are, what is the incentive structure? What is the performance management approach? Mm -hmm. What is the storytelling inside the organization? So we started a best failure forum at, at Northwestern to try to get people to be more comfortable talking about the experiments they tried that failed. How do you use some of that stuff to get people to be comfortable and reward them for productive experimentation rather than provide constructive criticism if they if they were not you know if if what they did didn't work and so uh that is the direction i think people have to go i also think that structurally when i talk to ceos and say well who's responsible for innovation and if they say everyone that's also a problem because if everybody owns it nobody owns it Right. What is the metric you're going to hold people accountable for with respect to innovation across the innovate across the institution? What do you have somebody on the senior team that is working with the business unit leads or the functional leads? My hypothesis is if you if you were like up in a I'll use the word drone flying above the like if you could take the roof off of most built most big companies you would find a lot of great innovation happening inside of silos. The challenge I think most have is how did, how does how does it work across the institution where you have different vocabulary and you have different leadership styles and you might have different metrics and you have the, all these things like somebody needs to figure out how to link all those pieces together. Hmm. So Betsy, I'm curious when these startups join 1871, is there any sort of onboarding or are they assigned mentors or how does that work? You talked about some of the learnings at Kellogg. Yeah. And so basically everything I just talked about was about the corporate side, the the early stage, the brand new folks, they walk in and they get, they have a full experience laid out for them. That's like very handheld. The 
for those that want to be handheld. There's obviously lots of self uh, self initiative required to be a founder and entrepreneur. The only thing we don't provide is capital. So we've got hundreds of mentors that are available to anyone that's working with us. We have a, a structured curricular experience. So if you're a person that has an idea, but doesn't know if that idea can be a business yet, you're in a cohort of 50 other people, of people that have idea have an idea and are exactly the same stage. And you're going through a 13 week structured curriculum with those folks. If you are, have you built an MVP, then you're in a different cohort. If you've launched the business and if you're if you are starting to grow that business, which we call Catapult, which is an acquisition we made um, about a month ago. And so I would put our early stage experience up against any anywhere in the world. With the exception of capital, I would, I would put what these founders get in terms of education, community support, access to perks that we can provide because of our scale, um, you know, next to next to any anything out there and has that evolved over the last nine years or is that oh yeah it evolved a lot um, it, i mean certainly when we first again i wasn't I, I can only really talk about the last three but the evolution of the last three has been extraordinary i, I hired a leader in february of 2019 and i told her to blow the existing thing up and rebuild it and so that wasn't because the existing thing was bad it was just that we had to get to a you know, you can iterate and kind of stay on the same curve, but I wanted to get to a different curve, a different, a different slope. And to get to a different slope, I couldn't get there with 1% improvement. I had to get there with a big change. And so she blew the whole thing up and rebuilt it. And we're, it's a journey that will persist for ever, continue to get, to get, uh, to get better. I call that uh, having to go back to go forward. Yeah, exactly. You kind of get to a point like, okay, so this is going, it's just not going fast enough. All right, let's go back. We made a decision back there somewhere where we we, we got to get on a faster growth path. I'm just curious, Betsy, how did you know she was the right person to do that? Yeah, you know, it's it's a, it's a good question. So she, she was the operations uh, leader at Techstars. So I knew that she knew a lot. She was, every time I saw her, she was constantly complaining and whining about 1871, about something. Techstars operates inside of our space. And she was always, she was just constantly like layer upon layer of constructive feedback. And which I appreciated because I don't, I, I needed, I was probably nine months into the role at that point, And I needed somebody with a super critical eye that had a point of view of how to get it to a different place. And so my team wanted, was talking to her about a different role and I sat her down and I, she was a student. She, we, she was one of my, when I was the Dean of Students at Kellogg, she was one of my students. We didn't spend a lot of time together, but we, but we knew, we, we knew of each other. We didn't spend a lot of time together. Anyway, I sat her down and said, okay, yeah, I see this role over here, but what if I give you the whole thing? And I tell you to, you know, and, and this is what I ask for. And then she got excited about that as a problem solving challenge. And um, she has since, so I, she became the VP of experience. She has since moved on. Now she's entrepreneur in residence at 1871. So she's, she owns that early stage idea to series A uh, full stop. And I have, I brought in somebody else that is also, that has the growth stage um part of it. So the series B through IPO frame. That's awesome. Yeah. 
Yeah, I took a, I took a, I mean, it was, it, I would say it's a risk, but it wasn't really, it was a risk, but not, but it was calculated, you know, it was. Somebody asked me the other day, I mentioned, you know, well, I've gotten lucky a lot. And they're like, it's not just luck, it's hard work. True, there's a lot of people who work hard, you still need some luck, right? Luck, luck's going to have a part to play, good or bad. I agree. I agree. Although I have asked that question recently about, I was hiring a COO and I asked, I asked this question about, do you feel lucky? And it's been interesting to see people's responses to that question. Some people completely embrace it. Like, like Patrick, it sounds like you would and that I would. And others say, you know, it's, it's a, it's a really interesting reaction to the word luck versus are they grateful or are they, you know, it's just, it's been, it was a, it, I, I, it, I didn't expect the responses I got from asking the question, but it, it has created some reflection for me about, okay, how do I think about that word? And contextually, what does that word mean? Depending on, you know, who you are and what experiences you've had prior. Yeah. Personally, I look at it like hard work and time is what you, what you can do. You can control that right? Luck is what happens when you do the first two, right? So, you know, you're going to need a certain amount of luck. Like if you started a business in March 5, right? You started a restaurant March 5th of last year. Your luck's not great, right? Luck is not on your side at that point. You could have the best plan in the world. It doesn't really matter, right? There's there's forces that are arrayed against you. It doesn't mean, but like when we started my, my second company in 2001 after the dot-com fallout, you know, at first I, I thought, like, looking back on it, like, 18 months in, I'm like, this was a terrible idea. And it wasn't, actually. It was a fantastic idea because it was a great time to get good at what you're supposed to be doing, right? So it did create fertile ground. It also, there were, you know, you had uh, some established organizations in the field in, in that discipline that were on their heels a little bit. So it did create the opportunities. When status quo isn't so safe, opportunity exists. Yep. I think that's well said. So we always try and close with uh, who's your mentor, right? Who's the, who are the people that you look to or have looked to or who's had an impact in your life? Because uh, none of us got where we are successful without help from others. Yeah. Oh, that's for sure. And I and it remains to be true, right? How much help I get on a daily basis. I have several one is, is, it might sound ridiculous, but Greg Case, who's the CEO of Aon, is the literally the person that plucked me out of grad school and brought me to McKinsey. And he remains a very important mentor, person, leader in my life that his, you know, we started off at McKinsey. He was more senior than me, certainly. But, and then in 2004, became the CEO of Aon, but we've stayed uh, very connected. Several of my former clients, so a couple people from the team at Discover, I would put in that category. Several of my friends have pursued really different paths, and I use them to like triangulate, you know, kind of how I'm thinking about the world. Some have kids, some don't have kids, some, you know, like that we're all different sort of life choices, which I think is helpful that there's sort of a mashup. Because I've never really felt like I've I've never worked with anyone that I've said, I want to be exactly like that person. I want to have their personal life and I want to I want to lead like them professionally and I want to follow that path. But I have said, oh, I really love 
how they handled this situation and how, and I really love how this person over here is always there for their kids. And no matter how busy they are at work every Friday is in violin classes with his nine-year-old or, you know, whatever the list is and try to like do, do this mashup. And, and I spent a lot of my days just doing mashups of ideas. Like, okay, I read this on Twitter and we have this happening at work and how this plus this plus this smush it together. Let's see if we can try that. And I do the same thing kind of with elements of, of people. Um, my current board chair is, uh, has been extraordinary. Uh, Larry Epley at Shepherd Mullen. He's my boss as my board chair, but he also plays a mentor role as well. And I, I there's a lot, a long list. Interestingly for me, most of mine are male. Most of my mentors are male. I've been fortunate that I've worked at meritocracies. So GE and McKinsey, deep meritocracies. The dean, the former dean at Kellogg, big mentor of mine, Sally Blount. For things that happen outside the classroom, I was the most senior administrator at Kellogg, which obviously she was my boss. And so like, I've never, the gender thing, theme, I've been really, I don't know if lucky is the right word, I've, I've, but I've been lucky about it. I've, I've worked with people that have been meritocratic in terms of how they thought about me and how they chose to support me, et cetera. So I, 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 that's a blessing. Awesome. I appreciate that. And I think it's, uh, you know, you never know. Uh, you've got to find lots of different people, more diverse, the better, more experiences. I love how you touch on learning, you know, you're not going to be like that person, but you admire certain behaviors about people. And I, I think that's really where a lot of the, uh, I was mentioning to somebody today, I think one of my best skills is my, I call it my mimicry, right? I can see other th people, people that they're doing. I'm like, I can mimic that. Right. And I may not be great at it, but I can mimic it pretty quickly. Right. And I, yeah, I, think I probably do that. Maybe that's a little bit how I'm thinking about my mashup thing too. This, well, I can, steal that from that person, right? I can try it and, you know, may, maybe put a little bit of a Betsy edge on it. And then we, you know, then it's yours. Uh, Steve Martin had this great bit where he talked about, uh, he was trying to be all these other comedians when he got started. And then he realized he just has to be Steve Martin. And I think that's true for many people's leadership styles that they, they've, you try out other things. You try to be Eddie Murphy, but only Eddie Murphy can be Eddie Murphy. Right. But then you, you, you figure out like, what's your, thing i think i could pull off bill burr pretty good i gotta say i think that one i could cover he's got the, the irish angry in him it'll work i think on that point that you're it takes a while for people to to grow enough into their own to to accept that though that they're good enough being themselves right and if they just focus on being themselves that's good enough i think i i think it's that's a hard that certainly took me a while to to get to as a as a leader. That's a really good point. Um, Betsy, before we wrap up, I have to ask about the dollar bill that's framed behind you. There must be something important. Yeah, it's a it's the first dollar my dad ever made. Wow. He uh my dad passed away when I was 18. So he passed away a long time ago. But that's a it's a silver dollar, which I you know isn't it neither really here nor there, but my grandmother held on to it. And uh, my my grandparents far uh, lived well past my my dad's life, and so sh she gave it to me, and I decided to frame it as a as just a memento of of his. I it, but that is the first dollar he ever made. Nice, that's fantastic. Well, Betsy, thank you so much for spending this time with us. We really appreciate you having you on. Yeah, thank you.
Yeah, my pleasure. I appreciate the invitation and um, uh, it was fun. Yeah. Good luck with uh, everything going on at 1871. It's such an important institution here in Chicago. Uh, you mentioned the, the revitalization, the rejuvenation, rebirth, right? The, num- the, the name's always, I've always thought, one of the greatest naming names for an organization, how it fits, the cultural yeah, importance, the historical perfect. relevance. Yeah, fantastic. So uh, we also want to thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in. We really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us today. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32.